but there was still false worship happening. There are people who are who are setting sacrifices and burning incense to God on high places. So they're worshiping Yahweh, but they're not doing it in the way that God had directed them to do it. So the Levites weren't the one doing the sacrifices. The Levites weren't the one burning the incense. The worship wasn't happening at the temple like it was supposed to. They weren't following God's commands on how to worship him. So this is similar to in modern days where it's like the group of Christians that will Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So we're going through chapters 13 through 15. Um, I might zoom through some of it because what you're going to get as we're going through this part of 2 Kings is it's really the, the downfall of the northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel has been at odds with God the entire time. <laughs> there hasn't been a single good king, and there won't be. So as you go through the northern kingdom of Israel, none of the kings are good. They're all wicked. You're going to see the same phrase over and over again every time a new king is introduced. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, just like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You're going to see it over and over and over again. Um, but there's some interesting stuff that happens, and it just sort of snowballs, and the downfall of the kingdom of the north is on its way. And with that comes a lot of turnover in kings. And unlike the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom is ruled by the line of David. There is a particular family bloodline that runs the throne in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, there is no allegiance to any one tribal line or royal heirs, so there is turnover because there's assassination attempts and murders and things that happen to just turn over and take power because there's no cohesive understanding of who the king is supposed to be. So that's what you're going to get into. So that's some of the stuff that we might breeze by pretty fast because what's happening is the more wicked they get and they're just in their downfall and they're continually seeking power, there's this quick turnover of kings and no stability because of where they, how far away they've gone from God. All right, now with that, we pick up in chapter... 13. So it says, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria. 
So Joash is the king in the south, and Jehu's son, Jehoahaz, is now the king in the north. And he reigned 17 years. And he did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Who made Israel sin? He did not depart from them. <clears throat> so then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. Now, if the name Ben-Hadad sounds familiar, it's because Hazael's father's name was Ben-Hadad, and then he named his son Ben-Hadad. So he's named after his grandfather. Um, so try not to get too confused because there's a lot of repeating names. But uh, verse 4, so Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. So this is what's going on. Hazael, king of Syria, God has handed Syria the opportunity to invade the northern kingdom of Israel because he's so angry with the northern kingdom. They just continue to be wicked. So God hands the people over to their sin, and he allows victory from the king of Syria. As this is happening, the king in the northern kingdom, Jehoahaz, actually turns his heart towards God because of the oppression around him and his losses. And he actually asks and seeks out God. It, it even says, if you look in verse 4, it says, So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. And Lord is all capital letters because it's Yahweh. It's talking specifically about the one true God, the God of Israel. And God listened to him. So verse 5, Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. So God listened to the pleading of the king. And he actually lifted someone up to deliver the northern kingdom out of the oppression of Syria. We don't even know who this deliverer is, but he was raised up by God because he listened to the king and his prayers and pleading. But this doesn't last. You're about to see that. Verse 6. Nevertheless... They did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did, and his might are not, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Now, it's about to get confusing again because Jehoahaz, his son, takes over the throne and his name is Joash. And the king in the southern, in the southern kingdom of Judah is named Joash. But this is the story of what happened in Jehoahaz under his reign. When the Syrians came in and he felt the punishment and the judgment from God, he actually turned toward God and pleaded with him. But as soon as God rescued them, he turned his heart back away from God and continued to push Israel to sin. This 
This is a running joke in sitcoms in the 90s. This is something that happens with people. Um, I remember in particular, there was a Seinfeld episode where they're all on a plane and the plane is experiencing a lot of turbulence. And one of the characters starts praying to God and says that they'll turn their life around if, if God would just rescue them from this and they don't die in, in a plane crash. And then the turbulence stops when she's done praying. And then she says, oh, never mind, we're okay. And that's exactly what's happening here. God is useful when you're in trouble, but when everything is good, walk away. This is actually one of the problems with sometimes people come to God in their deepest despair, but then as soon as life turns out okay, they start to walk away because it wasn't really about connecting and, and loving the God, God and what he did for them. It was really just about selfish pursuits in the moment. And this is actually why whenever I ask the students in youth group, what, um, when is it easiest to follow God and when is it hard to follow God? And they always come back with, well, it's really easy to follow God when everything's going well, but I find it really hard to follow God when things are difficult. And I always turn it back around on them and say, is that really true? Because what I've noticed in my life is that when things are going well, it's actually harder to turn to God because you have no need. And when things are difficult, that's when your knees hit the ground and you start praying again. And it's actually hard to live in blessing because we're such selfish creatures. To not be grateful for the blessing and recognize where it comes from, we just get comfortable really easily. So that was Jehoahaz's reign. Now his son, Joash, same name as the king of Judah. So it says in verse 10, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. So all they're doing there for you is they're calling one king Jehoash, which is the same, same name as Joash. It's just separating them to keep, keep your mind able to, to differentiate who's being talked about. And said, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might in which he fought against Ahaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria. Now, the fight between this Joash of the northern kingdom, and Amaziah we'll get into in the next chapter. But that's his whole reign is talked about just flipping over, a lot of overturn in, uh, in the kingdoms. But now something really important is happening. It says, Elisha had become sick with the illnesses of which he would die. So Elisha, the prophet who's been a topic of conversation for several weeks now as we've been going through Second Kings. He's on his deathbed, and he's sick, and he's not going to get healed, which is the irony of some of God's miracle workers, right? Even Paul, right? Paul was afflicted, and he couldn't get healed even though Paul was able to heal others. Elisha, unable to heal himself, even though he was able to heal others. But he's on his deathbed, and this is what happens. Joash, the king of Israel came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. So he's repeating a similar line of what 
Elisha said when Elijah got carried off into heaven. And it's just letting your grief out in a very public way is what he's doing. And so the king is basically going, oh no, our tool for victory is leaving. Elisha is the one who really kept the neighboring countries who wanted to invade us at bay. So he's going now. What are we going to do? So he goes and he seeks out Elisha and he explains his grief to him. And he's speaking with Elisha. And Elisha responds and says to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha uh, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the east window, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. It's very descriptive. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. So this is a kind of a practice in the ancient world to rile up your troops. You would shoot an arrow or throw a javelin in the direction of your enemy to basically make a declaration of war. And this is your gathering your troops. But this is just Elisha and the king, and he's doing the same thing with the king. And he says, shoot an arrow out the east window, which is facing the kingdom of Syria. And he's basically saying, God is going to deliver you from the Syrians. You must attack them at Aphek until you have destroyed them. So then he says, take the arrows. So he took them and he said, the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands of Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So what happened? He tells him, God's going to deliver you from the Syrians. You shot the arrow in that direction. And then he gives Joash a test. This is the same king, the same king who, when Israel was invaded, pleaded with God, saying, God, deliver us. And God promised deliverance. And so things get better, and Joash turns his back on God. So Elisha is testing him and saying, where is your passion? Where, do you, where does your heart really lie? What are you looking for? Are you just looking for the easy way out, or are you looking to participate in God's story? And so he gives him a test, and he says, hit the arrows on the ground three times. And what does he do? He goes, three times. And Elisha said, no, you should have been riled up. Because this is a moment, it's not like he didn't know what was happening. He shot the arrow out the window towards the enemy. He understands that this is a declaration of war to rally up the troops. He should have been riled up and he should have been passionate about what was going to happen. And instead, he taps three times and says, okay, I guess that's what you want me to do. Instead, he should have been like a general who was eager for victory. And Elisha's upset with him and he says, fine, this is, this is all you get. God will still help you but you're not going to get everything you could have gotten. So, Elisha died and they buried him in the raiding bands from Moab, invaded the land in the spring of the year. So Elisha's getting buried. And so it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly 
they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So Elisha's buried and put in a tomb. And now there's a funeral procession for another dead man. And you would bury the person on the same day before the sun goes down. That was custom, customary in Israel. But they see a band of raiders coming as they're going on their way to bury this dead man. We don't even know who he is. And so the people see this band of raiders and they realize they don't have enough time to get to the burial site. So they open up Elisha's tomb and bring him in to Elisha's tomb. And when he touches the bones of Elisha, the dead bones of Elisha, this man is brought back to life. Um, it's just really interesting, cool story. I like that there's a tomb that represents death, and then life comes up out of the tomb. I think there's a neat picture of foreshadowing of Jesus in there, except with Jesus, it's not someone else. It's him who walks out of the tomb, and I'm excited to celebrate that with you all soon. But just a cool story. Now, verse 22, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. So what is this saying? This brings us all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he, would, he had an everlasting covenant with Abraham, that his people would remain in the land and that he would take care of them and that those who bless Israel are blessed and those who curse Israel are cursed. So he's keeping his promise with Abraham. However, it doesn't mean that the people are always going to be allowed to stay because punishment is coming. But we live on the other side of the fruit of that, where God brought the people of Israel back to the land. And that happened in 1948. But just understand the promise that God made to Abraham is unconditional, which means even the people's sin and their constant wickedness and walking away from God or ignoring God would not deter God from keeping that promise because it was an unconditional covenant with Abraham. So now King Hazael of Syria died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place, and Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So, they get the three victories and recapture the cities of Israel, just like was promised with the three arrows were struck. Now, the scenes shift to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we get a little bit of a bright light and some negativity. So it says, In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. That's a really long-winded way of saying the next king of the southern kingdom is Amaziah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehodan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, not like his father David, he did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So what does it say? Amaziah was a decent king. 
He did pretty good, but he wasn't as good as David. Now, right, the worship of the pagan gods and the false gods might have been abolished in the southern kingdom of Judah, but there was still false worship happening. There are people who are, worship, who are setting sacrifices and burning incense to God on high places. So they're worshiping Yahweh, but they're not doing it in the way that God had directed them to do it. So the Levites weren't the one doing the sacrifices. The Levites weren't the one burning the incense. The worship wasn't happening at the temple like it was supposed to. They weren't following God's commands on how to worship him. So this is similar to in modern days where it's like the group of Christians that will take the parts they like about God from the Bible and then take the parts they don't like and ignore them and pretend that they don't need to follow what God says. So it's kind of like, well, I love God and I worship God, but that whole sexual immorality thing, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. I'm just going to ignore that part. Um, and, you know, there's so much in our culture today, right? Um, gender ideology and understanding that God made humans, man, male and female, he created them and he made them in God's image, right? But... We want to ignore that because we don't want to be controversial or we don't want to endure God's truth because it might make the world uncomfortable to hear truth. But there's a large movement of that going around. Or here's the big one, and it really kind of kicked off the progressive movement as it's taken over, is hell. The fact that there is a hell and... Jesus preached about it and talked about actual judgment. And Jesus said, you know, whoever, whosoever believes in me has eternal life. And that's wonderful news. But he also said, whoever doesn't is condemned already because he's rejected the Son. So John 3.17 is just as important as John 3.16. But hell is uncomfortable because it means that there will be punishment for wickedness. And that the standard of wickedness is not of our choosing. We don't get to choose what is good and evil. God's the judge. And uh, when we have to live by his standards, then we all know that we don't measure up. The good news is Jesus. But if he's the only door you can walk through and people reject it, well, then that's a difficult thing to deal with and to talk about. But that is what some people have chosen to do. Ignore the parts, which Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. There's been a movement to ignore parts of Scripture that don't make us feel warm and fuzzy. But unfortunately, Paul wrote that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training and training in righteousness and doctrine. Um, so we can't ignore those parts. And it might stink, and sometimes it's not fun, especially if you're the one talking about it and teaching on it. But truth is truth, and good is good, and evil is evil. And if there is a God, then he's the one who gets to tell us what those things are, um, whether we like it or not. But these people have decided that they want to worship God, and they're choosing the parameters for which they get to do it <clears throat> and what the rules are. And God is saying, I don't like that. <laughs> he didn't like it in the Old Testament. He doesn't like it in the New. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So now it happened, as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. 
But the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. So basically it's saying, hey, Amaziah is now taken over. He took care of those who murdered his father in accordance with the law of Moses. They received capital punishment because they murdered someone, but he didn't extend that punishment as much as maybe he wants to. He did not take revenge. He just sought justice. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war. And he called its name Jachthiel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted up glory, and that stay at home, for why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? So, basically, what's happening is Amaziah has experienced a lot of success. He's done a lot of good things, and now he's getting a little prideful. He's getting a little arrogant. And so now he's going to try to take, take the northern kingdom back, and the northern king says, no, don't do it. It's going to cause you a lot of trouble. But... Amaziah would not listen. Therefore, Jehoahash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Now that's interesting. The kingdom of Judah was a pretty, at least somewhat godly kingdom. People were worshiping, although some people were worshiping in not the way God wanted them to. Most of the people were worshiping, worshiping God correctly, and the king was a decent king. The northern kingdom was extremely wicked, but God allowed the northern kingdom to defeat the southern kingdom. Why? I don't really know, but I do think it might have something to do with who is actually going to learn a lesson. You know, sometimes God will teach those who are teachable. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash the son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim, the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver and the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now that's a bad idea. He took temple instruments and temple gold from the temple. That's messed up. Not, I would assume, not going to end well for you. You mess with God's house. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent, him a, they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses, and he was buried in, at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. So Amaziah starts out because his father was murdered 
from a conspiracy so that they could replace the king. And he starts out doing pretty well. And then he gets a little arrogant and prideful, and he leads the southern kingdom of Judah to failure. And people get upset, and then they create a conspiracy to kill him. And now his son has taken over. And uh, so his story kind of bookends the same way that it began. Now, Jeroboam II. So this isn't, he's not uh, related to the original Jeroboam, who became king over the northern kingdom of Israel. He's just the second king named Jeroboam. And he's kind of a carbon copy in terms of his behavior. So in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. You're going to hear that over and over and over again. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, important moment, Jonah, that's Jonah, like the book of Jonah, Jonah. And he's from Gath-Hefer, which is in the northern part of Israel in Galilee. He's from the Galilean region, from the Nazareth region. That's important because during Jesus's lifetime, some of the people tend to make up this excuse for why they don't want to believe in him. And they say, does anything good come from Nazareth? Has a prophet ever come from Galilee? Yeah, says so right here. You should know your own scriptures. Um, But that's one of the arguments the Pharisees use against him because of their prejudice against the people who lived in Galilee rather than the actual word of God, which states that a prophet from God did come from that region. In fact, Jesus even says when they ask him for a sign that the only sign he'll give them is the sign of Jonah. So he brings it back to the prophet who was from Galilee, and he performs that sign miraculously. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and it actually states the word in there, when Jonah is in there, is in, he's in Sheol, which is the grave. So Jesus he was, in the, he was in the fish for three days and three nights. Jesus buried three days and three nights before the resurrection, just as then Jonah was spit up onto the shore. Anyway, back to 2 Kings. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond nor free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam that he did, his might, uh, how he made war, and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath what had belonged to Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his father, the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Azariah reigns in Judah. The 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that he left the high places, uh, that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. It is so interesting to me that in this era where the kings are doing pretty good, that they're still so culturally sensitive that they don't want to hurt people's feelings. And they don't want to tell them the truth. Because 
isn't it just nice that at least they're worshiping God? Which sounds a lot like kind of the attitude of a lot of Christians, which I understand. We have this desire to be nice, and we don't want to ruffle feathers, and we want to act peaceably with each other. Jesus told us to try to act peaceably with one another. Um, but sometimes the truth is offensive. And unfortunately, this is where these kings failed. They refused to stand up for the truth of God and actually get people to worship them the right, get people to worship him the right way. So then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house, and Jotham, the king's son, ruled over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now, Azariah is also, he's also called Uzziah. So if you're reading Chronicles, or even in parts of this chapter, you'll see he's referred to as Uzziah. It's confusing, I'm sorry, but it's the same guy. But because of his failure to do some things, um, God strikes him as a leper. And so he actually has to be separated from society, and he becomes co-regent with his son, and his son reigns alongside him, really in place of him, while he's still alive. Now, what was he doing? We don't find out in 2 Kings, but in 2 Chronicles, you find out that he makes the same mistakes that people are making. People are, a lot, people are worshiping on the high places and they're doing their own sacrifices and burning their own incense. Well, Uzziah actually decides to go into the temple himself and light his own incense, a job that's only supposed to be the Levites. And the Levites, they had particular outfits and lineage and a job that was very predictive of what Christ would do. And so the king, it was not the king's job to go do this. But as he goes and lights his own incense, God strikes him as a leper, and they rush him out of the temple courts so that it, he doesn't defile it. And that's where he spends the rest of his life, being a leper outside. And he wants to get out of there as fast as possible because he understands he's, getting, he's receiving God's judgment for the thing he's also allowing other people to do, to worship falsely. Now, the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, or Uzziah, whatever you want to call him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. So you see the turnover happening a lot and getting faster. This guy only reigned for six months. And what did he do? He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Then Shalem, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the book, yeah, you know. But the verse 12, it says, uh, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. So Zechariah was the fourth member of that household, and so the reign of that household ends and a new family lineage takes over the throne in Israel. Now Shalem, the son of Jabeth, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, or Azariah, whatever you want to call him. And he reigned a full month in Samaria, for Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up and struck Terzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalem, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalem and the conspiracy which he led Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. 
then from Tirza, Manahem attacked Tipsha and all who were there in its territory because they did not surrender before they attacked it. All the women there who were with the child, he ripped open. Um, so now you're getting a picture of how wicked the northern kingdom is getting. I don't feel like I have to say it, but we're there too, right? This, you know, we have government money that does the same thing. And God looks at this travesty, and Israel is on their way out, and he's about to send a kingdom to take them over. And this is part of why, because of how wicked they've gotten. Now, the only, the only thing that we're better than is that they're not, we're not killing the mothers too. But they're ripping open the women and the children inside them. So, pretty gross. Now, Menahem reigns in Israel. In the, thir- in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of God, he became king over Israel and reigned 10 years in Samaria. And what did he do? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Now, Pol, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. So this new king in Israel, Menahem, he's about to face the judgment that actually the kingdom that will take over the northern kingdom of Israel is on its doorstep. And so the king of Assyria comes and he's about to attack. And Menahem, he has this idea. He says, what if I pay him off? And with this money that I give this king, I actually ask him to help me become more powerful in the kingdom of Israel. And I will do that by making sure that I give extra tax to the wealthy. Tax the rich. That sounds familiar. Um, and his goal is to obtain power by paying off foreign adversaries. But all, of, all that does is encourage them to keep the pressure on because they're either going to get more money and more goods from keeping the pressure on, or they're going to take over the kingdom. Um, So his idea doesn't last for very long. Now, the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers. Then Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the 15th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, you know know what he did. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam. and he gets a really short phrase. Then his son, Pekah, in the 52nd year of, oh, I'm sorry. Um, in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 20 years. And what did he do? Evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Um, so same old story. He gets a short reign. And then what happens? A new king in Judah. This is all the way down to verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did, all, he did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense 
on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers and buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father's place. Then Ahaz reigned in his place. And so that's where we leave off. What you see is a bunch of turnover in both the northern and southern kingdom, in particular the northern kingdom, who is just getting more and more wicked, even to the point of killing mothers and unborn children. And it's just wickedness. In the southern kingdom, you see they're relatively good, but they just won't, they're just too culturally sensitive, and the kings don't want to put their foot down and speak the truth and prevent false worship and prevent even though it, it doesn't seem evil, if it's not real worship to God, it doesn't do them any good, and it's making God angry. And so that's what you see throughout this. And I know there's a lot of names and a lot of stuff that's happened, but that's the point. What's happening here is you're just seeing the northern kingdom falling and getting ready to be taken over by Assyria because God is putting, going to put judgment on their wickedness. So that's what is preparing us in these chapters. That's what God's preparing us for. And then in the southern kingdom, you see the continuation of the lineage of David, which is important because it's that lineage that the Messiah must come from. And also, the longer this goes, the harder it is to fix the problem. Because as generations get born into this false way of worship, they take it as truth because no one's ever been willing to correct them. Uh, which when someone finally does, they have to do it very drastically because it's gone too far. And so that's what's getting built up as we move forward in Second Kings. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for this story. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming. It can certainly feel confusing and in some ways repetitive. It's so frustrating to listen to the same problem over and over again, people continuing to go in sin, um, people continuing to not stand up for truth. And it's so clear, it's written in black and white right in front of us. Yet, of course it's repetitive because we have the same exact problems in our own life and in our own culture. So God, I pray that instead of getting bored or judging what we're reading or judging the people that we're reading about, that we can recognize the pattern of humanity hasn't changed, and human nature is still the same. And because we haven't changed, thank you so much for your grace, because we need it as badly as we ever have. So thank you for your son and the sacrifice that reconciles us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.